Welcome to episode number two of the Spencer Fernando podcast. I'm pleased to be joined today by Mike Ryan, the host of Conversations with Canadians. It's a great podcast having, you know, a lot of different people uh, bring perspectives that you're not always hearing, and it's 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 quite good. I went on, you know, how long ago was it I went on with you there? It was, it's got to be at least six months ago at this point. Yeah. yeah, so it was a great experience. I think it'll be going on pretty soon again. A lot of things to talk about in Canada, but Mike, you know, he's a very thoughtful person. And, you know, not really super partisan either, less partisan than myself, I'd say. And uh, I think I think it's it's good to have that perspective. You know, this country is getting a lot of people are getting angry. A lot of people are getting upset. And we, we do need to try to find our way to, you know, some reasonableness. And I think Mike is going to help us do that today. So glad to have you here. Hey, it's a real pleasure to be here. You know, I, I was just saying right before we started recording, we spoke last time. And, you know, as you know, I've been following your commentary for quite a while. I always thought to myself, I'm like, man, Spencer needs to have a podcast. So when I saw you drop the first episode there, I was like, oh, finally, here we go. And I kind of wanted to ask you, actually. So what is like the overall aim of your podcast? What are you going to be doing on it? Are you interviewing? Are you going to be like dropping some like smaller or shorter episodes rather that have some political commentary on different things that are going on in Canada or what's, what's kind of the deal? Yeah, I think the idea is mostly to do interviews, you know, hour or so for each one. So kind of more long form, you know, get some in-depth discussions. It's it's kind of, uh, you know, you look at the mainstream media, especially, and it's 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 all sound bites, right? And politics is sound bites lately. And there's just, there needs to be, I think, more of a, just a, what they call it, in-depth or, you know, uh, long form, you know, reasonable discussion about things in the country that we're really not seeing too much. It's all just kind of anger and emotion from, you know, wherever it's coming from, right? Everyone's pretty angry these days. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to have some, you know, uh, just discussions that people aren't hearing. And, you know, it's not like, you know, going to copy Joe Rogan or something, but, you know, what he's done in the States and really around the world, if you look at his audience, it's it's quite impressive. And okay. it's... Yeah, it's 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 the fact that he has long conversations and he's just talking to people like regular people talk, right? It's not political spin, which I think a lot of people are looking for. And nuance. Like, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of people, especially people would be listening to this and like a lot of people who enjoy engaging in political discussion and stuff like that, they appreciate nuance because yeah. they know that like you can fit anything into a soundbite, right? And it seems that especially in Canada, a lot of our political figures and, you know, we know that the media is like driven by sound bites, but so is political messaging, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. like the one thing that I think, you know, people should understand is it's constantly, we're constantly in campaign mode in politics, right? So every message that comes from the government or the opposition, it's all about how does this look? How is it swaying public opinion? Were the polls right now, you know, can we capitalize on the way or the direction that the wind is blowing in order for us to, you know, kind of like uh, bolster our chances in the in the next election? And for people, you know, like myself, like you and like others, it's like, look, we want to get to the issues at their core. And I personally appreciate when people do deep dives into things like there's so much like I'm not a legal expert, but I, I enjoy hearing like legal experts give their opinion on, you know, the, how the Constitution fares with some of the things that have been going on, right? And, you know, that kind of nuance and discussions, I think, goes a long way with help, helping people understand what the hell's actually going on, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even the rhetoric in much of the media, you know, talking about the convoy, for example, right? It's, um, you know, one or two people carries a terrible flag there, and, and then you notice the media just shifts it. It's, it's like they, they start talking, oh, everyone was carrying it is kind of how the example and we said the worst example of course is justin trudeau right i mean he says 
said to Melissa Landsman, you know, a Jewish conservative MP, you know, conservatives, you know, you can stand with people waving swastikas, right? So, okay, one person brings that flag, you're going to tar every single person who supports it or who even is willing to give it a fair hearing with, you know, that kind of brush. So, yeah, I think, you know, politicians like Trudeau are trying to get people more and more angry. And I think it's important that we have discussions where we kind of take that out of it. Yeah, no, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. And it's I, it goes back to the fi- finding that wedge issue and using mm-hmm. it to exploit like political expedience and like opportunity in elections. And you're absolutely right. The the whole Nazi flag scenario was like the the perfect example of this, right? Like you had one individual, you know, at some point in the rally, the guy was in like a ski mask and like wasn't it? Yeah, the only person well? with his face covered in the whole place, right? Right. So it's like you know this person is clearly an mm-hmm. agitator of some sorts. Like it's not a person who like really believes in Nazism like proudly. That person mm-hmm. knew that the camera was going to be on them. They went mm-hmm. to great lengths to shield their identity. And you know exactly what I would imagine they think. Um, they thought what happened actually did happen where the media ran with the story. It be, all became about like white supremacy and like, you know, like Nazism. I think there was even like a, a Confederate flag. And like mm-hmm. we started like our Canadian federal politicians started talking about the Confederate flag. Like it actually means something in Canada. Right. Like yeah. this is something that has no connection to our country. But like people just can't help themselves. And I think fundamentally, you know, the left and certain members of, of the media, not all, because I have noticed, especially in the last like week or so, there's some really responsible members of our media who have been, you know, like calling out the uh, like absolute ridiculousness of this Emergencies Act. But we can mm-hmm. we can get to that in, in a second. But, you know, it's just like you see this at every turn, right? Like, let's find the the like the the small fringe blast it up to make it seem like it's the minority. It's almost like what I was getting at a couple seconds ago. It's almost like they were looking for a January 6th situation. Oh, right? yeah. They, they were saying that so often. Yeah. Right. They wanted it's January 6th. That's right. They wanted it so bad so they could have these national headlines and use it to drive a political wedge. But yeah. they weren't getting it because any person who was paying attention to the videos coming in on social media or the independent journalists who were kind of on the ground filming what's actually going on. Like you're seeing a complete disconnect, right? Like on the one hand, you know, on the media, it's like all these like a bunch of like angry people. And I remember one egregious example was like they showed a clip of Parliament Hill and like how few people there were. But then online, you could actually see like a drone shot facing in the other direction. Mm -hmm. And there was like, it's so many more people present than the media led on to like when they ran the initial clip right and it's like why are we why are the, why are we misleading about this you know like I, that's what i was trying to put my finger on like why do something like that if there's a serious issue and like a large portion of the population are upset with something why isn't it given fair coverage you know like it goes back to this whole is it agenda driven like some people will think other people think, oh, they just can't be trusted. They're looking for a story. You know, like, I don't know. What, what do you think? You know, I think a lot of it really is, uh, and it's, I guess it's controversial to say, but it's all who is protesting. And I think so much of the media, it's kind of go back. I worked at the Manitoba newspaper years ago at the University of Manitoba. And I noticed there were really kind of two types of journalists there. There were the people who were, um, you could say like the old school journalists, I, I wouldn't, they wouldn't call themselves libertarians, but that was kind of their perspective, right? They were like, they were skeptical of the government, anyone 
power they were skeptical of you know they favored free speech you know i was hired by somebody uh, to the person who recruited me there was didn't share my politics at all but liked you know free speech and wanted to have different opinions but then there were other people there and they were the the left-wing activists and you could tell that they were there to push a narrative and you know they were that there was one debate i guess i don't know if there's a legal issue going into the names or details so i'll leave those out but the, the debate was basically a, a group that was uh, anti-abortion on campus had written an opinion article and you know, there was a big editorial meeting and half the people were arguing oh we can't print this because it's it's sexist and i said wait a minute it's that's their opinion they're allowed to just share that it's the opinion section right if you don't agree with it then respond to it right and so there was a big debate there and unfortunately you see that now everywhere in society where it's you know a lot of journalists have the idea that if if a group that's seen is on the right or often, you know, if it's white people, to be honest, you know, it's it's interesting. It's the the attitude that is shown by people in the media towards white protesters is often quite different. You know, it, it immediately goes towards it's racism, or it's you know far right, it's extremism, and then it's this attitude like, oh, they don't really have anything to be upset about, right? You saw from a lot of people very little sympathy or no sympathy at all for any protesters uh, in the convoy. Obviously, not all of them were white, but that's what, of course, people focused on, right? And so, but when it's a protest with, you know, indigenous groups or you know, Black Lives Matter, totally different attitude, right? Then even Justin Trudeau, oh, it's understandable that people are angry. Oh, burning churches is understandable. Oh, you know, you know, burning stores or setting fires or whatever. So I think it's, it's the triumph of racial identity politics on the left and in the media. And that's really kind of filtered out throughout society. And so their coverage is based on first, what do the people protesting look like? Not even the cause. What do they look like? And then are they on the right? So are they not technically a marginalized group? And you can tell the change because you think, okay, the, the unvaccinated truckers are working class people and they're now a minority and a marginalized group who's been targeted rhetorically for sure and legally by the federal government. You know, that should check all the boxes of, you know, left-wing activists wanting to support that group. But because of all the other things I mentioned, that's that's not really the attitude we see. Yeah, it's definitely there's like an ideological bent to this as well, right? And mm -hmm. you saw this during the, um, I believe it was, like it came, it sort of sparked out of the uh, like the whole indigenous gravesite discovery, but it was also mm -hmm. going on like not too long after, if my memory serves me correct, of the Black Lives Matters protests that were like like just causing a reckoning in the United mm -hmm. States a couple of years ago, right? And you saw like statues, for instance, like be spray painted and like beheaded. And, you yeah. know, there's literally an article, um, I believe it was not an opinion piece, but an editorial piece that's in the Toronto Star that said, you know, uh, how the protesters are justified in their actions. And similarly, just a, a few weeks ago, there was an article about how disgraceful it was that like someone would dare drape the Canadian flag on uh, uh, Terry Fox's Terry Fox, statue, yeah. mm -hmm. right? And, you know, and I think they also put a sign that said like mandate freedom or something. But what's interesting about this, right, is there was no like paint, there was no toppling of the statue. And actually there's videos that surfaced online of people cleaning up the statue after, mm -hmm. you know, and like blocking it so people couldn't, like they put barricades around it, I believe. I might have this wrong. Maybe you can fact check me on it. But so people couldn't like get around it again and put anything on it because they're like, no, we're going to go out of our way to make sure this doesn't happen. But even mm -hmm. in the first case, right, like there's examples of people putting like LGBT flags, for instance, on Terry Fox's statue. I think uh, yeah. former 
uh, NDP leader uh, Jack Layton is photographed. And like nobody ever had a problem with this and they mm -hmm. shouldn't because it's, yeah. you know, a respectful position and like nobody's trying to like deface or degrade a statue or anything like mm -hmm. that. Right. But, you know, when the cause shifts, all of a sudden it's like the worst thing in the world. And we're just supposed to pretend like that cognitive dissonance doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. We're I tweeted to... about that. I'd said, like, oh, so now we're worried about statues now. Like, uh, what, what a change. Huh? Yeah. And like, like to me, what becomes offensive with this is, is. The, the fact that we're supposed to pretend like those two things didn't happen, like it, mm -hmm. like that we can't go back two years and see the editorial board of the Toronto Star saying one thing, and then it was in either op-ed piece or maybe it was from the editorial board again, saying something completely different on the same subject. The only thing that changed was the cause, right? Yeah. So it, it goes back to kind of what you were saying, like as long as you're on the right side, side of the activism or if it lines up with a particular political ideology, that's like clearly been imported from the United States, you know, then all is well, right? Mm -hmm. But heaven forbid you have a different perspective or you're protesting against, you know, something that's counter to the mainstream narrative, then all of a sudden you're some extremist or you're a terrorist, you know, that, that needs to be stopped, right? Like, it, it's really a shame what they've done with the, the word terrorist and extremist. Like, we've really manipulated to it over the years to the point where it has a lot less meaning than it should. Well, I mean, look at what Jagmeet Singh was saying, right? I mean, he explicitly said, I don't want to see this be the Emergency Act. I don't want to see this be used against, you know, indigenous land defenders or, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters or people protesting. I think he said the environment or something. Really? So it's not it's not like we have equal rights or anything, right? It's, it's just, oh, I like this protest. So did he actually do whatever say they want? That? He did say that. Yeah, it was he was talking about the, the Emergencies Act. And he said, I want assurances from the government that this won't be used against. And then he listed off those groups, right? So, okay, it's, he doesn't care about the power itself. It's just, it can't be used against, you know, his people, you know, people who agree with him. But, oh, we can use it against our enemies. And can you imagine the, the outrage if, if, you know, a conservative politician said, oh, I've, yeah, I've got no problem with the emergencies. I, I just want to make sure it's never used against right-wing protesters. But certainly, yeah, use it against Black Lives Matter or Indigenous people. I'm totally fine with that. That's cool. But just, just not against the people I agree with. Uh, yeah, make sure they're they're exempt from it. So, I mean, but again, that's identity politics, right? And you can see how identity politics is just completely incompatible with you know liberal democracy, right? The idea that everyone's equal under the law, the law applies to everybody. That's not compatible at all with identity politics. And one thing I was thinking, I think when we had spoken before, we had talked about how at one point we both were either involved in the Liberal Party or, you know, saw the Liberal Party in a more positive light. And I wonder if if you could share what you think has happened to that party, because I'm looking at Twitter and I see, you know, there'll be tweets about someone who's been charged or just the back and forth about the convoy. And I'll see liberal supporters there. It's 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 stunning what they're saying. You know, they're like, you know, go after them, go after everybody, punish it. It's like they're just like just drunk on power. Like, yeah, throw the, the state at everybody, lock them all up. And it's so anti-liberal, you know, in the traditional sense of the word. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on what's happened to that party. Well, two things to that. I think there there's a, a large portion also of the everyday people who also feel like, OK, these protesters have been warned. You know, mm -hmm. they were causing like supply chain disruptions, all this stuff. And, you know, they need to be stopped and good. And nobody, they're not really thinking about the consequences of you know, what the invoking the Emergency Act is doing to the state of Canadian democracy in the long run. But on the liberal question, it's funny. I actually noticed this back in 2012, 2013. So 
when I had joined the Liberal Party, um, it was like really much under the pretext of people like uh, uh, Paul Martin Jr. and John Chrétien, like that, like mm -hmm. that style of, of politician, right? And like, you know, just from my own personal understanding of what liberalism is and thinking that the Liberal Party carried these values forward, mm -hmm. right? But I think the, the a big turning point for the party was their back-to-back -back election losses and when they reduced, were reduced to third place because where I as an outsider, and it's not like, you know, I, I was like high up in the party or, or anything like that. You know, I like had elected candidates, was on EDAs, and I served as a, a riding president, um, you know, under the liberal banner as well. But I saw, I began to see a shift when Justin Trudeau took power personally. And this, I don't mean this for people listening. Like I know, you know, Spencer and I, we, we share a negative view of the prime minister, but this isn't about bashing uh, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, this is a statement of fact. Like when he became leader of the party, there was something like one, certain things that were being communicated to the public, like open nominations, for example, mm -hmm. that was like a hallmark. Grassroots movement was another hallmark of Justin Trudeau's candidacy. <laughs> but when he became leader of the party, like I personally myself witnessed a lot of things to the the counter, right? To the contrary. So for example, there was a riding, a specific riding in Toronto where, and just for some context, like this was around the time of the split, right? So there was a riding Trinity Spadina that mm -hmm. split up into um, University Rosedale and Spadina Fort York, right? There was a candidate, like candidate of record who, like she hadn't been successful in like two elections, but I mean, for an unsuccessful candidate, you're talking about a riding that was like fully funded, like hundreds of volunteers. Mm -hmm. Person was like really good, right? Like a really good candidate. And of course we know in University of Rosedale, this is Krista Freeland's riding <laughs> and they wanted her in. This mm -hmm. also happened to be this other candidate's backyard, mm -hmm. right? So what ends up happening is um, she basically is told that you know, she can run over here, but not here when she disagrees. They slander her, drag her name through the mud, like all this stuff, right? And oh. yeah, and like basically blocked her from running for the party, essentially. Like forget mm -hmm. about like how much she's fundraised for them or how much she did. So that was one example. And then in the Spadina Fort York uh, nomination, I remember a friend of mine who, you know, was part of the EDA there for a long time, had a lot of support from the constituency, wanted to throw his hat, uh, his hat in the ring. And, you know, people expect a competitive process, right? Like. Mm -hmm. People who enter politics, like in good faith, they realize they're not going to get gifted uh, a, a riding to run in, right? Like they're going to have to work at it. But in this particular instance, like I guess they had made a deal with Adam Vaughn. So, you know, they had greenlit uh, Adam Vaughn to run, which I don't know how it is now in the Liberal Party, but back then it meant you would have access to all like memberships. So if you were not greenlit, you could get like 30 memberships at a time. If you were, you could get like 300. Plus you get access to the membership list and all these other things, right? So they greenlight, you know, one candidate. And, you know, as soon as he's like basically ready to win the nomination, forget about this, that other people had their paperwork in play for, you know, weeks and weeks and it was just being mm -hmm. delayed. They finally greenlight the other people to run. And then like, you know, less than a week later, they call the nomination. And it was kind of, it's like, okay, like, here's a guy who's got a team in place or whatever. He doesn't need to help, you know, but yet you kind of trampled over the grassroots process. Like you made like a promise to the membership, like people who have been involved 
hammering it out on the campaign floor. And, you know, you essentially like go completely back on your word and you manipulate the process. And this is what political parties do. But Mm -hmm. you specifically said you weren't going to be like this. Right. And Mm -hmm. there's like so many other examples like this that I can cite, you know, like a, a friend of mine who ran in another riding. He ended up winning and he's a member now. But they let his memberships expire because they didn't they wanted someone else to run, but no one would challenge him. You know what I mean? Like, so this kind mm-hmm. of stuff and this these little power plays were happening. And at the same time as like that sort of like quasi like authoritarian nonsense was coming from the center of the party. The I started noticing that when I was speaking to individuals like at events within the party, especially like the younger up and comings, we were completely like at loggerheads with the way that we thought government should intervene in like society and and like business processes and things like that. And I thought like, what the hell? Like, am I like like totally off base here? Like, don't we believe in like free market? Don't we believe like to like a large degree that government like is a net negative like in the economy, you know, like and that's a classical liberal position. Right. Like this is like the background that I'm coming from. And I know a lot of friends of mine in the Liberal Party at the time, like we shared this. But as the more I got involved and started like connecting with people who were like inside the party and like, you know, like just at, at various levels or whatever, I started realizing, wait a minute here, like these people have like a totally different value structure. Like there is a belief that you know, the state should direct a lot of things, right? Mm -hmm. And there is a belief that like, not a belief rather in fiscal responsibility because that's the like another major component that I noticed. I was like, hold on a minute. We don't even believe in fiscal responsibility anymore, you know, because like I thought that's what like liberals were definitely about that under Christian and Martin, right? Like Mm -hmm. this is like really who we were. And now we're saying, oh, no, 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 no. Like really to be a progressive liberal means that you have to want to spend money on social programs, like even if the government can't afford it, right? Like the, like to hold the view that you should be fiscally responsible and you can still hold like um, some sort of progressive value. Like I, I mean progressive in like the more traditional sense, like pro-gay rights and like things like this, like those are incompatible, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, you need the strong arm of the government to like move society forward in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So I started, started hearing a lot of that. And what kind of did it for me was the requirement, and I don't have a dog in the um, in the pro-life, pro-choice fight, right? But hearing the requirement that candidates be pro-life in order to run for the party, I was pro-choice. like, choice. Yeah, sorry, pro-choice. Yeah, hearing shocking the, new Trudeau yeah, policy. Imagine that. <laughs> oh, what's going on? Yeah, so hearing the the argument that they had to be uh, pro-choice in order to run for the party, I'm like. Wait, so like what, like, is this a thought crime now, you know? And it was just like all these little circumstances, I think, you know, just like culminated under under the, the Trudeau brand, right? And it should be no surprise because like his team is the same team that like campaigned on behalf of Gerard Kennedy and like previous leadership uh, campaigns and stuff like that. And they're very much of the left wing branch of the of the party. And like I always say, like they basically should be NDP and they probably would be NDPers if they felt that the NDP come to power. But, mm-hmm. you know, they like monopolized on the liberal brand in a sense and kind of used it as a tool to facilitate their own agenda. So I, I, I really think that's what's happened here. And plus, you know, you combine that with like younger people who are out of graduate school or university that are like 
like working in the party who have that mindset that like the state should be used more as a tool as, as opposed to like somewhat of a mediator. I think mm -hmm. that's kind of led the party down the ideological path that it has come. It's interesting that you mentioned young people because I've been looking at some of the polls lately and very interesting results in I think the mainstream research poll there was I think uh, innovative research before and in the in the latest polls the highest opposition to you know restrictions and mandates and everything is among young people 18 to 34 and then support for the convoy is highest among young people and so it's interesting you have two conservative positions that are and the conservatives generally do terrible among young canadians i mean their poll numbers are often just brutal there but now we're seeing you know interesting change in the poll numbers and i also noticed pierre polyev uh, he, he's talking a lot about issues that affect young people and almost directly to young people he's talking about you know affordable affording homes money printing so he's connecting kind of big government statism with uh, the economic problems young people are facing and i wonder if you think that's the conservatives have potential with all that's happened over the past two years to start flipping some young people from the left and, and more into their party yeah you know this is uh like ever since i you know like at one point i also became a, a member of the conservative party and was volunteer there helped elect candidates there and um, that's one of the things that I really like kind of spearheaded a lot in my own with my own group. It's like, how do you get like younger people who are like typically more like your centrist voter mm -hmm. to not see the conservative party as a right wing party, right? Mm -hmm. To see them as this party that like A is championing things that are in their interest and B is, you know, a, like a middle of the road party that like has a real grasp on Canadian values, right? So when you look at the landscape for young people today, 18 to let's say, is it 18 to 34, 35 is the cohort? Yeah, in the polls. Like, yeah, so what are the things that these people care about the most, right? And I think one of those things is definitely housing affordability, like without a question. And the second one is just going to be affordability more generally because of, you know, the five, what is it, like 5.1% in inflation rate currently. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, on top of that, we have all these restrictions and it's interesting i haven't spent much time looking at the polls recently on um on mandates and stuff like that has it gone now in the other direction where like the like 18 to 34 cohort is like really against this now yeah i think it last means no it was i think angus reed that's what it was angus reed I think it was 61 uh, percent of 18 to 34 wanted they agreed with the statement it's time to lift all restrictions yeah so, yeah and yeah, that so, was the most support among any group yeah. so to answer your question right like the conservatives have always talked at like a, a big game but it had felt like the 20 let's take the 2019 andrew Shear campaign for instance right like they made a hard mm -hmm. push for affordability right like i think like I, I can't remember the exact wording of the campaign message but it was something like you know like a life is becoming unaffordable we want to give like control back to you and your family essentially mm -hmm. of like your own financial well-being and stuff like that and obviously you know no campaign slogan whatever sound like that but it was along those lines right but was it really the time for a message like that is something you know that that comes mm -hmm. to mind right because you know i think it might have been a little bit too early people really didn't care about that stuff you didn't have these high inflation rates like housing pricing was out of control before but like it's really out of control now Right. So this is a key issue to that constituency group. And I think, you know, with the right messaging, the, the conservatives should capitalize on that. Although one criticism I've always had of the conservative party is they seem to make that their only message. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like they re- seem to run their entire campaigns all the time on like, well, who do you think would be the better fiscal managers? Mm-hmm. You know, like us or the Liberal Party, like I'm speaking mm-hmm. federally here, right? And I think like that sort of language and rhetoric misses a lot of what people actually care about. Yes, affordability and things like this are crucially important to people, like no questions asked. And I know like for probably a lot of your audience who are very fiscally minded and, you know, like they're going to think, well, like, of course, affordability is important. And to people who think like us, like this is like priority number one, right? But like somebody said something to me once that I thought was so brilliant. It's like, what do Canadians, when you're thinking about political messaging and strategy, what do Canadians uh, lie their head or dream about when they lay their head on the pillow at night? Mm. Right. And that is the part of the message that I think conservatives have been missing. Like what like inspires us to be Canadian. Right. And I think, you know, this is where the the whole freedom movement can come into this as well. Right. Like mm-hmm. the, the ending mandates, ending restrictions and not out of like, um, a look, we're just like done with the pandemic or whatever, because like obviously that's part of it. But you know, kind of like this is like a serious country, right? Like this is a country that has like real values that has contributed real things to the world. We've done like amazing things. And right now we are a completely closed society that is selling out its economy and its education. Like there, there's some like statistic, I think like there's some 200 plus thousand kids who are out of school currently. A friend of mine has put together a think tank to like kind of locate all these kids and say, okay, they call them third bucket kids. Where are they? How do we get them you know, back because they're missing from any formal education, right? They're not in virtual, they're not in school, in person. And like, these are kids where when their crucial years roll around, like 13 plus, if they're not in school, they're lost. You know, like they're not going to pay a big price for that down the road. For sure. Like what jobs are they going to have in the economy of tomorrow, right? Like you Mm -hmm. and I know full well, the economy of tomorrow is going to require like cognitive function. It's going to require like an educated workforce and like, like, skilled trades or like uh, tech, like up and coming things like that, right? It's like, so what sort of message can conservatives deliver that would, you know, capture the hearts and minds of people? And I think, yes, of course, always the affordability now being more important than ever, but like even more importantly than that is a message about like who Canada is, who we are, you know, like why we need to move forward as a country and like even more importantly than any of that, like who do we want to be in the future, right? Like what kind of country do we want to be? what is the plan for Canada? It's completely reactionary all the time, Mm -hmm. it seems to me, right? Like, and that's anything from economy to foreign policy, like you name it, right? Like, where is the Canadian politician who has strategic vision for the country that says, look, we have this huge landmass, you know, like we have like major economies all around us. We got the United States, you know, to the south, we have Europe, we have Asia, you know, we have Russia, like we have we're just surrounded by like leading powers, you know, like definitely the the global world order is starting to shift here. And I'm not saying we throw up our hands and say, oh, let's just like roll over and die. But Canada <laughs> wants to negotiate on its own behalf with some of the emerging powers and emerging economies around the world, right? Like, like is there room for us to say, hey, should we be expanding northward? Should we have major international airports in Yellowknife? Like, should we be working on building our economy towards the north so as the ice continues to melt, you know, we can sort of capitalize on like shipping laneways opening up. And like, yeah, Russia sure active up there. We're just kind of looking, oh, that's look at Russia doing some stuff. Yeah, oh, that's not going to come back to bite us in 20 years. No, we'll just, we'll just keep doing nothing. 
hundred percent. And it, to me, it's because like, you know, we, we outsource all of our security to the United States. We, you know, like we essentially, in my view, have become an, a, a vassal state to the Americans, which is why world leaders don't negotiate with us. They negotiate around us. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of cemented with, you know, the recent um, uh, free trade agreements signed that Canada signed on to where the U.S. like essentially gets a veto if <laughs> over free trade agreements or trade agreements that we make with countries that they might deem a threat to their national security. Like mm-hmm. that makes any sense, right? Like just strictly from like a, a sovereign country perspective, right? So like it's no wonder people don't take us seriously. And what the hell are we doing about it is my question. Like where is the campaign mes- uh, messaging that says, hey, this is the vision for the future of Canada. This is something you as a citizen can be proud of. This is why you should be proud to live here. Because as it sounds now, it seems like we're losing a lot of talent. We lose talent in like in fintech and in, in the technology space to like places like London and elsewhere. You know, we've been losing citizens to the United States. Like I have uh, some personal friends who have moved down to Florida, like successful people just said, mm-hmm. you know what, me, our, my family and I were out of here. You know, like this is the legacy of Canada. You know, we're like, where's the vision to stop these people? Where's the inspiration? And I think like, um, you know, the conservatives really need to factor that into their messaging uh, going forward because like Canadians need to hear that message now. Like now's the time, right? Yeah, that's what's it's been so interesting about the, I think, the convoy is that I think it's tapping into something a lot deeper, right? It's It's not just only obviously mandates. I think part of it is, and in, in terms of the political support for it as well, it's it really is a battle over what defines Canada, what are our values, what do we stand for? And it's so interesting. I see this attitude a lot where you see a lot of Canadian politicians and you know many Canadians who define ourselves basically only in opposition to the United States, which is extremely foolish for a few reasons. Like, first of all, you know, people can say whatever they want about the states, but it's the richest country in the world. It's done great things for the world. Of all the world empires, if you want to call them that throughout history, it's by far the most peaceful. I mean, look at look at Europe right now, right? You have basically those countries saying, look, we want to be closer to the states because we're scared of Russia in many cases, right? So, you know, and so you have a very rich, very free, very militarily powerful country, country that is extremely similar to Canada, extremely similar, right? Most of us speak the same language. Obviously, Quebec is a a different case but very similar we watch most of the same sports the same entertainment you know it's one point my wife has made she said you know canadians should ask themselves have you ever watched an american movie and felt like you were watching a foreign film right it doesn't feel like a foreign film right that's it's, a really it's, good yeah, point Holy. Yeah, it's, yeah it's it's the same civilization the same culture and so you know you have people but they look and say any little difference with the states well that's what can so canada is you know oh we we go after people more who who have guns oh we and then now what's being weird is it's it's almost as if because america likes freedom canadians are against freedom it's very strange to see in many cases where it's like oh well freedom well it's just something right-wing people say so that's not what we're going to be all about and i think you look at the convoy it's really a reaction to that right you know people are saying freedom all the time that's been the big word there and so i think that issue is something we have to really consider because you can make the argument that canada has often been more about freedom even than the united states obviously during the times of slavery people were coming here to escape that uh, in terms of how we treat uh, different minority groups throughout history canada has often been more about freedom there but somehow that hasn't seemed to kind of seep into the minds of people right they have this idea that oh you know you're peace order and good government all the time right and i see people that have been just constantly saying oh peace order and that's what we're all about peace order and good government well, that 
that's not too far off from what a dictatorship could say, right? Lots of dictatorships say, oh, it's very peaceful. Uh, there's order everywhere and we're providing good government for you, right? And so it's almost like there's there's two kind of candidates arguing that, right? There's the the peace, order, and good government side, people who think that's our main value, and then the true north, strong, and free, right? It's in it's in our national anthem, you know, freedom. So I think that's that's part of the debate that's happening now, and I think you make a good point that we have to figure out what we actually stand for as a country, because those are two very different things, and I think we're seeing that played out right now. It's funny you mentioned the POG. I remember uh, mm-hmm. when I had a uh, JJ McCullough on my podcast. We had an interesting mm-hmm. conversation about this and I brought that up to him, mm-hmm. right? I'm like, this is like, you know, how people say this is like the, the founding principle of Canada, mm-hmm. like peace, order, good government. His response to me was like, so what? You know, just because like people wrote something down, you know, like uh, 150 years ago, 155 years ago, that doesn't mean that's what people believe like mm-hmm. today or even back then, right? Like, but let's take today for an instance, for instance, do people believe peace, order, and good government is our like fundamental constitution in Canada? Or mm-hmm. do they believe that it's liberty-based? Mm-hmm. And I don't mean exactly life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? But, you know, like not to echo the American model, but do people more, you know, you use the example that your wife said so eloquently, where when you watch an American film, you don't feel like you're watching a foreign film, right? Mm-hmm. So is the American culture like such an influence on the the Canadian like ethos and ethic of like the individual citizen where people just fundamentally see themselves as life, liberty and pursuit of happiness? Like this is the role of, of government and nothing more. Mm-hmm. Right. So like I always find that interesting. And I wonder if this like anti-Americanism we're like, does it really st- like it must stem from Canada's beginning, right? Like like people have to understand that Canada is a very Elite, has very elitist foundings, mm-hmm. right? And it really says nothing about the average citizens uh, of Canada, even the people who settled here, right? Like mm-hmm. and like the the people who existed under British rule. We know very little about like what they thought about the ongoings of like day to day civic duty and political activity. But we know a lot with what the elites thought, right? And we know mm-hmm. that the elites, with their elitist background, like they had a. a a very, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, even for the times, but like they had a view of the way that society and culture should operate, right? And like we know that Canada was founded during this, uh, the American Civil War, like like in and around that time, right? So they're looking like reactionary, like making a reaction. They're very reactionary to this, right? Saying, mm-hmm. look, like we want to avoid a lot of that. We definitely don't want to be swallowed up by this. So like we have like very anti-American beginnings and this mm-hmm. seems to carry through like all the way right like you said it best like you know on the one hand it goes from like anti-americanism uh, in constitution and, and just in opposition to everything to you know oh we're more progressive than the americans right because like we don't uh like have a gun culture here in canada we like treat our prisoners with more dignity we have uni- universalized health care we're better than them and now we're seeing this shift again we're more racist than the Americans, mm-hmm. right? Towards our ad- indigenous people. Like we've committed genocide. It always here. has to be different, whatever it is. And it leads to absurdities, right? Where you have, I think the point about, you know, gun owners, you have no crime problem with law abiding gun owners in this country, right. but you do have a serious gang problem, right? 
But, you know, going after law-abiding gun owners, it really makes Canada look a lot different than the states. So that's what we're going to do, right? We're not going to go after where the actual problem is. And so, you know, it's a good point. It's just, yeah, and now, so when it's, when America's doing something we see as bad, we're better than them, we're more good than they are. And when they do something good, it's, oh, well, uh, no, we're, flip it around. We're terrible. Now we're, we're yeah, as you said, oh, we're more racist. Now we're the racist. I mean, and, and that's the weirdest thing is, you know, people who, I remember having a conversation with somebody once, a very NDP type person, and they they were talking about how they're obviously not a fan of the states. And so I, I talked about military funding, right? And they said, well, we shouldn't even have a military. I said, well, okay, you don't want the states, but you don't want us to have a military. We're still always going to be right next to the states. And the states is always going to be concerned about this part of the world in terms of security. So who do you think will be providing security in Canada then? Yeah, America, right? So, and, and just this this attitude, and it's so shallow too. That's that's the other funny thing, like the anti-Americanism. It's you could say it's um, you know what is it, a mile wide and an inch deep or something, right? Like it's just it's people say all oh, America's terrible, and then they go on Twitter, they're looking at American news, you know, watching American entertainment, watching American sports on so an American just, yeah. platform. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? And so it's it's just it's it's. It's almost sad because it's like, do we really have nothing that defines us other than being not like another country? And it's such a weird country to choose not to be like, as I said before, right? A very successful, by all accounts, a very successful country. It has its problems like everywhere. But, you know, if you're like Taiwan is certainly defining itself more as not being like China, that's a pretty good example. Or you're choosing not to be like a communist authoritarian dictatorship that has rounded up a million ethnic minorities and put them into camps. So that, that's, you know, if you wanted to find yourself as not that, that's a pretty good choice. Yeah. But to say, yeah, we're not going to be the United States, uh, you know, that's that's our identity. It's, it's, it's pretty unfortunate. So it's almost like I had this conversation with, uh, I don't know, do you know who Ben Wood Finden is? Yeah, chance? I've seen him on Twitter a bit, yeah. Okay, so he, um, like, he's thought a, a little bit about this. And because I was kind of like, okay, so what is, like, what could be the overarching Canadian identity right like because if it's you know as justin trudeau said we're like this post-national state which to me means like the end goal is like we're nothing right like mm -hmm. like what is really a canadian uh, like it's a group of people who like wear certain types of clothes religious or otherwise and like we exist like under a framework or whatever there's got to be more that binds people together than that mm -hmm. because like Yes, Canadians do identify with the charter and like we should talk a bit about the charter in a minute, like and, and how it's kind of been cast aside here. But, you know, like what what makes one a Canadian if this if if this view of liberalism becomes like post-national, right? And Ben thinks that post-nationalism is like the logical conclusion of liberal universalism, like of sort of like the Pierre Trudeau liberalism. Like the logical endpoint of that is where just what Justin Trudeau is getting at is like, look, there's really no difference between any of us, like other than like maybe you wear like a, a turban and I wear a cross or, you know, like whatever it is, mm -hmm. right? And is there anything there that can bind us together? You know, and, you know, I'm probably butchering this because Ben's like a lot smarter than I am. And, you know, the, like he's he's really thought out on this. But like one of the things he said, like. Where he thinks like Canada could could do well to build a, a national identity is with this a sort of like liberal particularism, particularism, which kind of looks at like regions and says, hey, look, Canada is a huge country. We know the regions are different, but it's that it's the difference of these various regions that make us one. You know, 
And the <laughs> counter argument to all this, of course, would be look at the American model right now. It's like values, like the rule of law. These are the things that should bind us together as a country, right? But I think Ben's point is more like, look, we, we don't want to be identified or seen as similar to Americans. This is something unique to Canada that we could capitalize on that says, hey, look, what makes us Canadian is the fact that a Newfoundlander and an Albertan and somebody from Manitoba, you know, all respect each other's individual individuality, but like sort of live under this in this like state that's binded by this constitution or whatever. Yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it. I think, you know, one of the issues is if if we're trying not to be like the Americans, that's still you're still kind of being defined by that. You're almost being controlled by a, a concept outside yourself. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that the flaw of post-nationalism is that I, it just, it's not compatible with human nature. I think if we've learned any, I mean, look at sports. Like you'll have people who, in some cases, in, in very big cities where they have two sports teams, right? Big cities big enough to have, you know, two sports teams. Fans will divide themselves into each of those teams and we'll go to games and cheer against each other and you know sometimes there's fights right but there's there's something in the human mind that's very you know tribalistic right like people will create a tribe whatever it is whether it's race religion uh creed nationalism it seems like nationalism is the biggest we can create you know like you're, you're talking about you know someone in america feeling american or someone in russia feeling russian or someone in china feeling chinese Compared to most of human history, those are gargantuan landmasses and massive amounts of people to all feel similar, right? And any attempt like the EU, it's not really working. You know, the average person in Europe doesn't really feel that they're first European and say second German or French, right? I mean, you, you can see what's happening in Europe. They have a lot of divisions. So to try to go beyond the nation has never really worked, right? It's It, it never really gets people's mm -hmm. identity the same way. And then, so if you don't have some sort of nationalism, then I think you run into the problem of, okay, people are just going to find a smaller tribe, right? So, I mean, if you look at, you could say, ethnic politics in Canada, it's extremely tribalistic and people don't like to talk about it. It totally gets talked over. But you have very much, um, you know, local ethnic campaigns that are run in much of the country under the radar. You know, most people aren't seeing it, but it's very, very different than what people think is happening. I mean, again, Justin Trudeau, perfect example. Look at his position on protests in India. Why did he take that? Why was he super in favor of the protests in India that were going on, right? Because he thought he could win some votes in Canada, right? So why do you have to have a certain position on politics in a different country in Canada to win votes in Canada? That already speaks to kind of a lack of a binding identity here. And then, you know, obviously he took a different position on protests in Canada, right? When, when the, they were protesting him, all of a sudden he's not so much in favor of disruption. And it's interesting how that works. But I think we have to get past this kind of fear of, you know, being, you know, like the Americans. I think, you know, what I think, I, of course, I'm biased. I'm very much kind of a libertarian person. But you think you have a country of very different land masses, very different people, uh, extremely diverse already and getting more so if you look at immigration patterns, cities that are very isolated, right? Like the, the, the centers of population in Canada are extremely distant, right? There's centers of population and then nothing, and then population and nothing. So that's already kind of an issue. So I think you kind of have to have some sort of libertarian, freedom-minded idea as your main ideology. And that can be national. People hear nationalism and they seem to get afraid of it. But if you, if you have a national identity based around individual rights and freedoms, then that's not a scary thing. That's not going to be a problem, right? 
And I think that's probably about the best Canada could do because you can't really, if you have no nationalism at all, it just evolves into tribalism. And if you tried to enforce extremely strict hypernationalism, that wouldn't work here either because there's already so many different types of people. So I think it has to be very much kind of leaving people alone, limited government, you know, respecting individual choice. And I think if we don't do that, I think the country is not going to survive. I mean, you look at Quebec, it's, it's either Quebec or the West that feels like leaving at one point or the other. We kind of alternate between the two. And right when it looks like it's about to get too bad in one region, then the country kind of stops it from completely collapsing and then it goes back the other way, right? So that's not really sustainable. And, you know, if, if you ask the average person, what does it mean to be Canadian? That's a lot of people have a tough time answering that question. You know, that's a question. Yeah. That's a question I asked a lot. Uh, ask a lot of the guests on mm-hmm. my podcast. That's like why I've even asked you that question. Like, what does um, Canada and being Canadian mean to you? And it's like it's interesting to hear the answers, but you know, people don't unless they've listened to the show, they don't know it's coming. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's not that easy to pin down, right? Like mm-hmm. you say, you know, you, you said something a little bit earlier that kind of triggered a memory I have. It it almost seems like Canadian foreign policy, like when like our leaders are abroad. They're directing their comments at a national audience all the time, sure, like yeah. because it is for domestic purposes, right? And I think you're right. That does speak volumes to you know the fact that there are all these different constituencies within Canada that they feel they have to speak to, like on foreign soil, like with a crisis, like the India example that you gave, mm-hmm. right? And you know, and I, I totally agree with the um, the like getting outside of human nature. I think this is one of my biggest criticism of the modern left, right? Like I, I just don't feel like their vision of society and reality and like, like uh, the polity for lack of a better word is commensurate with like human nature and the way Mm -hmm. human beings actually operate, you know, it's like, so how do you tame like tribal instincts? Right. Like the excess of tribal instincts in a sense. Right. And I believe you are correct. It is through this like binding of values. And do you think like maybe this is kind of what Pierre Trudeau, for instance, was getting at, like when he created the charter? Because I know like, you know, Pierre Trudeau for like a lot of his faults um, with the way he handled some of his policy formation, like when it came to like the charter and unity of Canada, like he very much saw people is all being equal under the charter and having that as a binding document you know do you think that like was part of his intention like looking back he certainly did have a nationalistic uh, bent to his politics for sure that obviously his son doesn't really have i think where he went wrong and where the liberals have gone wrong is in equating that with centralization right and that's of course what led to a lot of the anger in the west was his obsession with centralizing and so it's it's a tightrope to walk, right? I mean, like, you know, how do you have people feel a common identity without forcing that on people? And that's in a free country, people don't like to be forced to do anything, and rightfully so, right? So, and that's why I come back to the idea that I think it has to be based around freedom and generally leaving people alone. Because, you know, you see people compare uh, the states often in terms of, you know, uh, healthcare and different results, and, and they'll compare it to the, the, the Scandinavian countries, right? It's a very interesting because those are relatively, you know, racially homogenous countries. And, you know, most studies show that you you can get people to support a lot of social welfare for people who they feel close to, right? For people who they feel very similar to themselves. It's very tough to do that in, in a very diverse country. You tend to see successful diverse countries have to be a little more on the small government side. It has to be more about, look, we're going to leave you alone. You're free to do what you want. You don't infringe on me. 
I don't infringe on you. That's generally how it works best. So yeah, your point about the liberals and or the left, the modern left and human nature is a good one because I think that's that's the problem they keep running into. And I think the the convoy again is a good example. Is you you take people and you say, okay, well now you were heroes up until just now, but now if you're not vaccinated, then you can't do your job. And it's like they thought that people would just say, okay, yeah, cool, I'm deprived of a living, thank you, and they would just not do anything, right? So that that's a flaw in human nature itself to not recognize. That people won't sit back and accept it and then and then as it started going every time trudeau spoke he just totally dismissed them it's like oh they're all racist their views are unacceptable okay well if you have people already feeling pretty desperate and angry dismissing them out of hand is not going to work out too well and and the fact that we have to tell a politician this like if you're in politics you should have a decent understanding of human nature right and so this attitude it's like and and this is where it's kind of the utopian attitude they have which i find very concerning utopian types do the most damage if you look at history stalin certainly had a utopian ideology right he was a crude person but he thought oh he's going to create the perfect kind of system right the perfect system hitler obviously very similar and of course i'm not making the the trudeau hitler comparison that's that's going too far obviously but the biggest danger in politics comes from people i think who have this idea of a perfect world and they just need to force everyone to be like that and, and to do what they want and everything will be perfect and if you don't agree then you're just a regressive and oh you're just too stupid to understand right and so we're seeing more and more of that in canadian politics i think from different political parties on the left the ndp and liberals is they just have complete contempt for anyone who disagrees with them it's, it's not even they don't even see them as part of the country or as part of legitimate discourse it's, it's just no you're you're racist you're sexist whatever and they're totally dismissed and so people don't like like to do that and you can look at what happened in the states with hillary clinton and the, the deplorables right that that comment certainly didn't help her out and if you look at the margin she lost by in key states you know that might have been what tipped it right so you know uh, what's the last thing oh, you know don't want to talk too much here but there was a study where they talked about um i think they had cameras on people who went in to get marriage counseling right and they looked okay so they wanted to see can we identify anything and who's actually going to make it and who's not right and so what they found was that subtle body language signals of contempt could almost perfectly predict whether it would succeed so when there was contempt shown even subtly body language almost all of those marriages fell apart when that wasn't shown there was a problem that could be reconciled right yeah, right. so yeah and and the way you look at trudeau and jagmeet singh the way they talk about people you know, canadian citizens it's total contempt right it's totally dismissive you know when there was the boston bombing trudeau was glad to say oh this is someone who felt excluded and marginalized not even a canadian citizen he's talking about but it's total contempt for people here in the country so i think our country could be headed towards a breakup if we don't uh, see some of those attitudes start changing yeah, like I, my other problem associated with them too is this like paganistic collectivize, collectivization of everything, mm -hmm. right? Like, like it's such a depart from the individualism. And I know like people have issues; they take issue when it comes to talking about like individualism. Like, oh, rugged ind individualism creates like a very selfish culture and things like mm -hmm. that. And that's how often that sort of language is used to you know, dismiss it in favor of like some sort of collectivist language, right? Mm -hmm. And they, they kind of get to sneak it in there, right? But I mean, we're seeing like full throttle right now currently what the problem of collective guilt is, right? Like, you know, th this whole notion of targeting people, like potentially targeting people who uh, contributed to protests that weren't illegal, 
right? Mm -hmm. The idea of associating like all the protesters as like white supremacists, for example, therefore making them guilty of extremism, um, worthy of enacting like an emergencies act, right? Like things like that, you know, like right now, I think just the other day I heard like one of the organizers wives had her credit cards frozen. You know, so like they no longer can make pro purchases because bank accounts and credit cards are frozen like that. That's collective punishment. Like, yes, her husband may have organized these protests, but she didn't do anything. You know what I mean? So like she's guilty. Social by credit system. Of course, yeah. so you're guilty by association and like everybody's just OK with this, like or not everybody, but a lot of people are just OK with the fact that this is happening. Right. And this isn't like the first push at this, right? Like we're, we've been seeing this with the identity politics. I mean, you're like really good on this subject, right? Like, you know, where like people are assigning guilt to like an entire group of people based off of the color of their skin. You know, you as a like a white person, for instance, are responsible for what, you know, your ancestors did you know, at the time of Sir John A. Macdonald without providing like any context or anything like that. It's, you know, never mind the fact you have no connection to them. But like, you know what I mean? It's not even about the absurdity of the argument as much as it's about the collectivization, right? And it's almost like, it's like a, a very like, like, I want to say communist, but I don't actually mean that. It's like very like paganistic in, in a sense, right? Which I think drives a lot of that thinking, you know? It creates all these different dichotomies, you know, that people try and capitalize on. And in our current context, they try and capitalize on it for, for political gain, you know? And, you know, to, mm -hmm. to your other point, it, it really drives the country further apart. And if you really... Um, separate people like we take regions for instance right let's just like further this dichotomy to uh, like uh, the west we'll look at alberta for example like you actually think if alberta really wanted to separate there's anyone in this country that could put this country back together like do like there are no more politicians that in my view mm -hmm. are capable of coming to save the day right now you know we're just lucky that there's never been a separatist movement in ontario because <laughs> ontarians mm -hmm. like we see themselves as Canada. And I know that's mm -hmm. a very like, um, as somebody who's from Ontario, that's like, uh, like might come across as like an arrogant thing to say by to some of the listener, listeners here. But what I what I mean by that is not that uh, Ontario is so great or whatever. It just does so ha have so much cultural and like, if not cultural, definitely economic prowess, right? And the population of the countries in Ontario. Of course, right? So right? Itself, yeah. But Ontarians see themselves as Canadians. It's not like in Alberta, you know, for I use them as and I this is like literally, you know, I love that province. My wife and I go there once a year. So no pun intended. But like in Ontario and central Canada, because they've always been so close to power, they see themselves as Canadians. They don't see themselves as the other looking in. Like you mentioned the whole the problem with the centralization process. That centralization has never affected Ontarians, right? So this is why they have this perspective. But had there have been a separatist movement in Ontario, what would happen if they decided to separate? Mm -hmm. And what happens today if Alberta decides to separate or Quebec? You think there's anyone who can come patch this country back together? Because if one separates, maybe bright ideas come from another province, you know? So I think this is a, like a lot of people say, I'll oh, let them leave, let this, like you got to tread very carefully. I think because like Canada, I think still is a, a, a great project worth saving, worth cultivating, you know, and we really have to pay attention to these regional divisions that we're creating. Yeah, another thing I've thought of you talk about Canada as a, you know, a great project is I've had this thought where, you know, you look just 
take you know politics or anything kind of opinion based out of it and just look objectively canada should we should be way richer than we are like it's actually the problems we have in terms okay so like basically unlimited land and we've got severe housing shortage well that's that's interesting unlimited energy but our energy prices are surging i mean and i listened to trudeau and christy freeland talk and i get this kind of creepy sense where it's almost as if they're kind of saying like canada's made enough money now we're just distributing it and it's kind of it's kind of this attitude like where you see like you know it's not selfish it first of all being selfish is necessarily a bad thing well i'll come to that point later on selfishness but it's not wrong to think we should be getting richer all the time i mean that's literally what everyone kind of dreams for the next generation is you'll be richer than me that means you have more access to resources you can pay for better health care you know you can have you know um, you can buy better food you can live a better life you can live in a better environment all these things it's all you have to have high gdp to succeed going forward and we've kind of had this attitude where we don't even talk about that anymore i mean our gdp has been falling per capita for quite some time now we're way behind the states and you just you just don't hear people talk about that but the selfishness point you raised another point earlier about you know people talking about how rugged individualism is uh, supposedly selfish and the one thing i've noticed especially in the last two years with the pandemic that's so interesting is people making what are obviously kind of selfish and self-interested kind of claims for themselves while casting themselves somehow as looking after everybody right so it's people who are they're obviously scared to go back into society without people wearing masks or without vaccine passports and it's okay well that's self-interest you're scared of something and you want to keep society locked down so that you feel safe that's that's a selfish request but they cast it as if no it, it's it's about help helping everybody right and it's the same with you know you see uh you know people who justify you know collectivization or communism it, it's always oh it's about helping you know the, the common good or everybody else but that always ends up in a dictator and then a ruling class with a lot of wealth a lot of power and then everybody else being pretty poor so there's always going to be people who benefit economically there's always going to be people at the top the only question is whether people are free to achieve that based on their merits or whether it's just chosen through politics and so i think you know conservatives have to kind of you know back to the political aspect they have to stop being afraid of being called selfish or individualistic i mean progressivism and individualism used to be quite connected you know the idea that every individual deserved dignity and should be treated well and shouldn't be forced to you know act in a way they didn't feel was compatible with who they are that that used to be supposedly progressive but now that progressives are in power they're they're all about forcing people to act the way they think they should so yeah i don't know what you think about all those points but well i mean like i obviously agree with a lot of that right because like back to the whole conservative thing right like it's yeah they have to be able to def like the problem that they run into okay like one of the problems that they run into they always get defined by their opponents mm -hmm. and they never like they never get out ahead they never have a good rebuttal like so it's it's you have to explain the merits of individualism right like and and selfishness you know i think it was ben shapiro i heard say this once he said like no what's what's selfish is you expecting me to pay for you to create goods that i don't want right mm -hmm. so you know through, through like some sort of economic yeah. distribution you're able to like sit in your basement and paint with watercolors or like create a bunch of crap that i don't want to buy and then i'm forced mm -hmm. to buy like that's selfish like not being selfish is creating something of value that i go that i then want to go out and buy right mm -hmm. and like connecting that to to like economic growth and like how it raises people out of poverty all these different things like i think that's a winning message like what we're departing from here 
is like the persuasive argument of free markets and, you know, like a, a capitalist system. And of course, like, you know, keeping in check, like the corporatism and stuff like that. And that's not even, you know, like uh, allowing governments to like bail out and give money to corporations. Mm. Like here's a, an example, right? I'm in the steel industry. Okay. And like my supplier is DeFasco. And in Ontario, just last week, they announced they're going to give DeFasco $500 million so they can um, like refit their production process to be more uh, environmentally friendly. Spencer, these guys have been making over a billion dollars a quarter the entire pandemic. Okay, like, and I'm not even kidding. And like, yeah. like for, for for Stelco, that's public uh, yeah. and easy, like to to parse out their financial statements. They've been making over three hundred million dollars a quarter. A quarter, and Defasco is way bigger uh-huh. than them, but they're owned by ArcelorMittal, so it's very hard to deduce like what's happening at the Canadian operation plant. Mm-hmm. But like you would expect that's an Indian company, right? Or yeah, yeah, that's right. But you'd expect they're making double, triple the money that that, that Stelgo is making. But regardless, even if they were making three hundred million a quarter, why do they need taxpayer money? Mm-hmm. You know, because the government wants to do that, them to do something like you're talking about, like big players in the game. So there's that. There's the bailout front. Like there's all the different like like regulatory perks that like I get why people have a problem with a lot of that kind of stuff. But that's not what you and I are talking about here. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the model that drives growth. Right. And, you know, I think it was Christian Freeland in her book. If it wasn't her book, she wrote this somewhere where. Um, like redistribution should be prioritized over growth, right? And I'm paraphrasing here a little bit. She's right? free to give all her money to the government if she wants. Yeah. That's right. And it's like an insane proposition, right? Because like when you look around the world, poverty being eliminated at, a, at like alarming rates, like meeting like UN development goals, uh, like connecting people to the electrical grid. Yes, like no, nothing's perfect. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, we there is a huge problem, I think, where like more and more is ending up in the hands of fewer and fewer people. Like you have like a billionaire class that is absolutely thriving. Like, I don't know what to do about that, you know, but the answer isn't, you know, more government involvement in business, you know, because it's not them who are going to suffer. It's Mm. everyone else who's going to suffer, right? Like, you know, this brings us to this conversation about the stakeholder capitalist model. And I've like, you know, gone to business school and in like the last few years, like this is the approach that, you know, at least the school I went to and I know, a lot of other ones are beginning to take right like mm-hmm. move let's move away from like the the concept of uh, shareholder uh, supremacy in a sense in favor of this like stakeholder capitalist model and when it's explained in, in business school it's like oh my god this makes perfect sense right but what it really means at like a macro level is infusing government or fusing together government and business and society all in one right mm-hmm. and is that really a good idea like do you really want to give the government that kind of control yeah, well, I mean, that's it sounds like corporatism, which was kind of what the Italian fascists talked about, right? It's funny, people, it's an interesting thing where people seem to think that fascism and communism were just completely different ideologies. Oh, they were just totally opposed and a reaction. Well, yeah, a lot of collectivism in both of them. They both weren't big friends of a liberal democracy and, and free market capitalism. So, but yeah, this, you know, you mentioned what Freeland said. When they had their first announcement about the uh, the emergencies, actually said something that was quite interesting, and it was both kind of it talked about her kind of condescending attitude, but also the government almost accidentally admitting that they don't have as much control as they think, or as, as they want people to think. At one point, she said, "We need you using your trucks not to protest, but we need you getting back to productive activities for the economy." 
Which is very interesting. For one, it's like, who are you to direct people as to what they're supposed to do? They don't work for you, do they? I mean, and then second is, you know, the government, and, you know, you talk about the people want to just, you know, paint and get all their money from someone who doesn't want to buy their painting. People in power, they need other people to work for them so they can then take their money and then give it to themselves and other people, right? It's a very interesting situation where, and you can only do that really ideologically by convincing people that they should feel guilty for wanting to keep what they earn. And I see that sense a lot in Canada. I think that's why a lot of people who succeed here financially go to the States, right? Because there's kind of a weird guilt of people who succeed. You know, I see people on Twitter, they'll call people like myself and other independent media grifters, right? That's the word. Oh, you're a grifter. Oh, you make your money from people who, who give you contributions. So wait a minute, that's grifting? You know, sharing my opinions freely and then people freely choosing to give money? But someone at the CBC who gets their money because everyone was forced to pay for them. That's not grifting. Well, that's a very interesting way to flip that around. So that's yeah, this, this, there's there's an attitude in this country often where it's like if you succeeded and, and it's actually quite ominous because that's how you know radicals talk is if you succeeded, you must have taken from somebody, right? And the concept of providing value is lost in a lot of people. It's like, no, I mean, look, I'm not really a fan of you know all the big companies, but the idea that, oh, Jeff Bezos is too rich. Why? Based yeah. on what? I mean, did you create a gargantuan distribution company that gets people most of the stuff they want in an extremely short amount of time? Did, did Bezos force people to first buy the books that he had in his bookstore? And then did he force them to buy the new products he sold? No, he provided a service and it worked out great for him, right? So, and, and Elon Musk too. People say, oh, Elon Musk, uh, he's way too rich. Cool, but like, did you come up with, you know, mass-produced electric cars? And are you launching rockets into space? I mean, okay. Did you donate how, $5 billion yeah. to charity like a couple mm -hmm. months ago? Yeah, and like, like how, how much should he? Well, yeah, and then the question is, yeah, what, what should he actually be getting, right? What's the level, what are you okay with him getting, right? Didn't he like he even like sold his stocks in a way to maximize his tax obligation? Mm -hmm. Who did like no, nobody in Congress or in the Parliament of Canada does that? Okay, like I don't care who you are, chances are you are not trying to maximize your tax payout. You know what I mean? And yet, like, yet the criticisms will still stand. And you're you're completely right, right? Like these people didn't force you to buy anything, and there's. There's always a hint of jealousy, I think, that oh, is sure. the conversation yeah. with this. And like why we allow one of the things we seem to have done and continue to do in our culture is allow like that example, right? Like jealousy to hide under like virtue and mm -hmm. like like moral superiority, right? Like these people will hate on like somebody like uh, Elon Musk, for example, and they're just like shading over their jealousy with like mm -hmm. some moral grandstanding that's like, Oh, if I was you, like I would give like 99.9% .9 of my wealth away like every year. It's like, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a good point. It's, you know, I know she's a controversial figure, but in uh, Atlas Shrugged by Anne Rand, there's a really, really interesting part where she, she talks about how these people, I think it was a, I think it was an engine factory, car engine factory. And they yeah. decided, yeah, they decided to, okay, we're going to go from each according to their ability. So we're, we're going to pay people not based on what they produce, but we'll pay them based on what they need. And the guy, and it just, it obviously it goes, it goes terrible, right? Because everyone starts needing more. But the guy makes a good point. He said, when we were coming up with this, everyone was looking at the person above them, thinking we're going to have some of what they have. And we all forgot there was someone below us looking up at us and saying they're going to have what we have, right? And that's, that's the interesting thing. You'll see people, you know, they have a house and two cars and they're like, oh, I'm a, 
I'm a proud socialist. Cool. I mean, but that guy over there has only zero cars and you've got two. So why don't you give him your car? And I don't think you're using all the rooms in your home. So why don't you let this homeless guy come live with you? And then it's like, oh, no, but but I worked for this. Oh, you worked for it. Cool. So capitalism for you, but everyone else should do the socialism thing. And, you know. Doesn't Jordan yeah. Peterson hit on this too? He says mm -hmm. like, uh, like the people complaining about the one percent. Like, mm -hmm. you know, well, you're like in the one percent in the world, sitting mm -hmm. complaining of your iPhone on your yeah. iPhone and like from your <laughs> Apple MacBook. And it's like, no, no, I didn't mean the one percent in the world. I mean the one percent in Canada or mm -hmm. the one percent in the United States. Only in my own country. It's like, oh, how convenient for you, right? Like, it's crazy. So, well, what do you think about the Emergencies Act? Like this whole debate around it. I wanted to ask you this question. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, it's, I'm quite disturbed by it. I mean, first of all, I don't think they should have brought it in. All The blockades were all cleared without it. And so that kind of that gets rid of the justification uh, immediately. But even more disturbing is how they're justifying continuing it. I mean, now they're saying first they said, oh, it's an extremely high bar. And we feel the bar has been met for a national emergency. And then and now it's oh, but uh, the truckers could come back. It's like, cool. OK, so like. Pierre Polyev becomes prime minister in a few years, and there's a tweet by someone who calls himself an indigenous land defender, and they say, yeah, we're going to go protest against this pipeline. Prime Minister Polyev invokes the Emergencies Act because of the possibility of a protest. And that's that's the standard, all right? There's a possibility of a disruptive protest against national infrastructure that could disrupt a city. So you get to declare, I mean, and obviously I don't think Polyev would do that. I, I like what he's been saying about it. He's taking strong positions against it. But people on the left, in the in the NDP especially, they really need to think about this. Like, this kind of power doesn't just go away. And the precedent being set for using it so easily and quickly won't just go away. So unless you assume you're never going to lose an election, you might want to be a little bit wary of someone having that authority. Could we steal, man, the, the position of invoking the Emergencies Act? Like I, I, w I was trying to do this in my head, okay? Like, mm -hmm. so prior to, you know, the protests being dispersed, right? Like, it, it was definitely debatable if this should have been used, even when they were blocking the borders, right? Like, mm -hmm. could this have been handled with regular policing if they would have just like stepped up their game? Like in Ottawa, clearly there's a local failure of, of policing that oh. occurred there. There's like some provincial reluctance as well to like really, you know, like disperse these things. But it, like, how would you let's let's try and do this together. So how would we steel man the use of the Emergencies Act right now? Like we would start by saying what? Like, OK, supply chains are disrupted um, mm -hmm. and businesses are being shut down in Ottawa. And like there's absolutely no way to control the situation. Like there's foreign money coming in. You know, which is a, a whole, again, like, okay, let's work on the steel men first because I can mm -hmm. criticize that with the amount of foreign mm -hmm. money that's come in for so many other causes that no one's cared cared about. But like, yeah. what what else would we say that like could justify the use of the Emergencies Act, right? Like businesses in downtown Ottawa are suffering. People are saying like their employees are afraid to come to work, like all these different things. The police can't handle the situation. Province doesn't have enough resources. What else? Anything else? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think you summed up all of the reasons the government's used. I mean, obviously the blockades of the border were, were shut down without the Emergencies Act mm -hmm. right before. And then you look at Ottawa and as you said, like that looked like that was a police problem. 
you know, mm. there's there's no legal authority they've invoked that they didn't have uh, to break it up, right? I mean, so the best they can say is tow trucks. That's what I think Bill Blair said. Oh, well, we, we forced the tow trucks to operate. So you're saying you plunged the entire country into a national emergency so you could tell some tow truck drivers to pull some trucks away? That's an extremely low standard. And so, yeah. go ahead. I was just going to say, okay, so like clearly it's debatable when the emergency existed, right? Mm -hmm. So now that the emergency is gone, you know, and like I saw there's some aerial footage of like some trucks meeting somewhere near a border, like some farmland or something. Like what is the steel man justification for the Emergencies Act today? Like the only thing that I can think of is, look, there's like a real threat that the borders could be shut down again tomorrow and we can't have that because there's like critical infrastructure that's being shut down but the question is is that actually true you know and is that and even if that is true is that reason enough to invoke the emergencies act for like as you said before something that might be and isn't yeah and you know i think kind of lost in all this is the fact that the government never tried negotiating, never even talked to the protesters, right? And so we think that should always be the first step. And even politically, look, if the, say the liberals negotiate, they, I think they should have negotiated in good faith, but just politically, even if they had, even if it was in bad faith and it was just a political ploy, you know, the fact that they didn't even think that, oh, we're just going to go talk to people and hear them out. Maybe you don't send Trudeau, maybe you send you know, some less less controversial people. You know, Joel Lightbound probably would have been willing to go and talk to some people. Yeah. But the fact that they, they basically went from doing nothing to Emergencies Act. And so that that's what it starts to look shady to me, where everything Trudeau did was to try to inflame the situation more and saying, you know, it seems like he kind of wanted it to get to a point where he could justify what he's doing now. And then the fact that the emergency is over and he still won't give the power up that raises some more concerning questions. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because he was kind of like he dismisses it as a fringe movement. Then he goes mm -hmm. to MIA, yeah. like for until it's like completely out of control, and then all of a sudden it's Emergencies Act, and then it seems like there's some polling done that says, hey, like a lot of a large portion of Canadians like aren't about having the border shut down, like rightfully mm -hmm. so, right? So using that as justification to invoke this Emergencies Act, and for most people they think. OK, look, we had to clear the borders and people's businesses were really suffering downtown Ottawa, like something had to be done. Not, I think, really thinking through the implications, like kind of like, you know, at mm -hmm. the beginning of the segment here where you had said, look, like there's some long term implications here with like willy nilly, that's even a word, using, <laughs> you know, this act, right? Like in saying, OK, like, so what about like when it's a, a, a protest of, of a cause that you don't like that goes on for a little bit too long? You know, what about the fact that like foreign money has been used to influence environmental protests and shut down like pipeline projects and things like that? Like it's mm -hmm. been traced back that foreign money has been involved. That's a direct threat, you know, to our, if you want to call it national security. Like I would because we're talking about, like you said, economy and money that could have been generated that isn't, right? So, you know, is that going to be true in that case as well? Is this a discussion that we're going to have in the future? Like these are all the problems, but like the biggest problem that I see is the emergency is over and it's one doesn't exist right now. And the whole maybe, it just doesn't seem like a reasonable country would invoke 
like even if they don't do anything with the powers, let's say, right, even if they don't just the fact that they're in, being invoked and like it passed a vote in parliament when there wasn't an ongoing crisis, it was handled and cleaned up by by existing police forces and police powers. Is it, doesn't that like strike you as a little bit nuts? Yes, it's it's quite nuts. And it's the problem is that you could keep an emergency forever if the justification is something bad could happen. Something bad could always happen. That's, that's the nature of existence, right? A big country, a lot of people who are upset. Yeah, something bad could always happen. So you're just stay in a permanent emergency then. We're, we're, we're making sure we're prepared. And that's, you know, that's what, you know, dictatorships do. That's how they justify their power. So it's for your own good. It's for your own safety. If you're not breaking the law, then you have nothing to be worried about. We're only going after criminals. Of course, who's considered a criminal just keeps expanding over time. That's how that goes. And so I, th I think people should be very concerned about that. And, you know, it's this is why I think it's been so absurd what the NDP has done. I don't even talk much about the liberals at this point because I just kind of assume Trudeau is obsessed with being an authoritarian and expanding. So it's not a surprise when I see him do that. But for the NDP, it's kind of like the fact that Singh would say, I want to make sure it's not used against these these groups, right? That tells you at a certain level he knows it's dangerous. He's He's kind of scared of the government having the authority. But he's only scared if it's used against people he supports. But he's not in control of the government, really, so he has no way to know that. And so it, it's – and then I've seen some people say, oh, well, you know, uh, it was a confidence vote and we don't want to go to an election. Yeah, that's not well, sorry, Yeah, sorry, like you know, taking people's rights and freedoms away is a little more important than whether you feel like having an election campaign. Like one of those things kind of takes precedence over the other. So, yeah, it's just the priorities are pretty and, – and then they went on – they're on a they're on a break for a week. Yeah. Serious, terrible national emergency. But we're, we're Parliament will be back in their constituency meeting people for a week. So, yeah, well, I, I find it amazing. Like right after that vote, Singh made some comment on on Twitter about um, you know, the Ukraine crisis and whatever. Mm -hmm. Like and uh, like a, a like projecting a principled stance. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like yeah. like we all just witness what you just did here. Okay, mm -hmm. like we we know that you don't have any principles. You know, so stop like feigning some like mm. moral high ground or whatever. When you like, is it because your party doesn't have the money for an election? Like, I'm really curious. Do you actually truly believe that this is necessary right now? Or is it that you just don't want to fight an election? This is as good as it gets for you. You're having mm -hmm. like a disproportionate amount of like influence right now because your support's needed. Like all these sort of things go through my head because shouldn't there be a principle or ethic or duty for parliamentarians to stand up? to like first of all for the constitution and the rights of and, and freedoms of canadians and when like something that's clearly an overuse of, of federal power it's like who else do we depend on if not the parliamentarians to kind of speak up for the everyday canadians right like mm -hmm. it's almost like a betrayal of, of their of their duty in a sense right and like like i said like before the thing was cleaned up like, even though I wouldn't agree with the use of the Emergency Act and still argue against it, I could at least mm -hmm. understand why, you know, the Liberals would whip the vote or the NDP might support if they feel that this is a big problem, even if it's blown out, blown out of proportion. Like, I can't understand them um, going forward with this, with that vote yesterday, when the emergency no longer exists. Because, like you said, is it always going to be the next thing? Like, is are we going to the climate, the sorry, the climate crisis next? 
and like once this is over and like the pandemic has kind of subsided a bit is it going to be climate emergencies and like or if there's a massive war in europe right or yeah well, state that, of emergency to protect from economic disruption due to the global conflict right there's always a reason you can have a state of emergency if you really want to right that, you know that made me think have, did you by any chance listen to the uh, magic magic noir's podcast on, on Joe i did Logan? yeah Okay, so he kind of like highlighted that at one point when he was talking about yeah. Egypt, right? Like after the president was assassinated, they were under state of emergency for like 20 years. And mm -hmm. they used it as justification to like essentially like torture him and his his mm -hmm. like band of like misfits or whatever. And whatever yeah. they were up to, you know, like that's some pretty intense stuff. Like these people mm -hmm. were like locked in solitary confinement and like brought to some like off-grid uh, prison, secret right? injections injected with stuff he didn't know what it was yeah that's a literally insane right and it yeah. was all done under the guise of this like emergencies act you know that like they had invoked right and like maybe there's not a direct comparison right now but it shows you how far this can go mm -hmm. but what really like blew my mind about that podcast was the discussion around the centralized digital currency and i had to like go look that up after because i'm like this sounds like like hyper conspiratorial and i know he like played some videos or whatever and i started like looking it up a bit i'm like i heard before that and i figured that they would want to try and counter like digital currencies like through bitcoin mm -hmm. and stuff like that but man that really does and i like in a normal world i would never think twice about it I'd be like oh yeah the government's gonna have a digital currency and like you know you're a libertarian like mm -hmm. i've always been like more like of a Canadian um, Canadian mentality with respect to government where I haven't mm -hmm. necessarily like been afraid of like using the power of government right in my life. Yeah. But man, I like the last two years has really like turned me into a libertarian. And I find like the more I speak to people who are of that opinion, like yourself, like Candace Malcolm, I'm just like, there's way more logic that's coming mm -hmm. out of your guy's mouth when it comes to this. And like, even when you take the ideas you know of like like more like freedom and liberty in government and kind of mesh them with the values that we all claim that we have it's like mm -hmm. you can't have one without the other like because if you have too much state intrusion you can't have the values that you see um as canadian values you know in a sense yeah yeah it's interesting i think that you mentioned kind of rethinking how you view the world the last two years i've done some of that too right i mean i think uh and this is where I think the conservatives could actually win a lot of people over if they showed a little humility. You have to do it carefully. You can't just say we're you know, wrong. But I think, you know, on really two issues, you know, my past attitude towards, say, indigenous protests, right? I was much more kind of law and order kind of authority, like, oh, it's it's been deemed illegal, so go in and do something. And, you know, that's, that's not always the best way to do it. You do have to, you know, I think conservatives need to realize the way we're feeling about the way the state is acting is how a lot of indigenous people have been feeling, right? And so kind of making that connection. And then, you know, with uh, Islam too, and that, that's where it's tough because there, there certainly is and has been a problem with radical Islam and terrorism. So that can't be dismissed. But certainly I think politicians have used that fear to cast wider suspicion on a lot of innocent people. And conservatives in the past have been totally about using the, the power of the state to protect against terrorism, right? Which often included in, infringement on civil liberty. So, that's where it gets challenging, right? It's very easy for people to see uh, the need for freedom for those who they agree with, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why you see people on the left now who are saying, oh, I'm not being affected. There's no problem. Well, yeah, you're not being affected now. It doesn't mean it won't be like that in the future. So I think conservatives, you know, they could win a lot of people over if they would acknowledge that, you know, it's it's not just about opposing the use of these powers 
now, but it's about looking at how they could be used in the future and protecting against abuses in the future against groups who may not be pro-conservative at all, right? It's got to be about everybody's rights. So yeah, I do think a lot more people are starting to become more libertarian. Uh, it's just, you know, whether that will actually filter out into the political system. I think, you know, Polly has certainly gone in that direction, which I think is good. Uh, if you look at uh, Candace Bergen, she has as well. So the, the current leadership of the Conservative Party is going there. But, you know, you're hearing about Jean Charest planning to run, you know, some people who don't want Polyev to win. And I think the reason they don't want him to win is because they want to keep the, the establishment in power. And the Canadian establishment is not too pro-freedom these days. So, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on the Conservative leadership race? Maybe yeah, we'll wrap it's, it's, up it, in the next 10 minutes or so. Yeah, OK. Like, I, I mean, I find the race interesting because on the one hand, it almost seems a bit like a coronation is about to unfold here because there's like really widespread support for Polyev. And I, I think that stems like at least from where the base comes from, from like, not that I have my, my finger on the pulse of the, the base of the party or anything, but just like from what I gather, like talking to people and stuff like that is, you know, people are kind of tired of there not really being opposition in this country, mm -hmm. right? And like, I mean, opposition of ideas. Like we just went through a pandemic where unchecked, the government, you know, was able to basically do whatever they want. And I'll speak federally for sure. Provincially here in Ontario, it's the same, right? Like there was no real opposition to like mandates, to like vaccine passports, any of these things, like the restriction of freedoms. I mean, the infringement, the current ongoing infringement on mobility rights for a certain section of our population that happens to not be vaccinated, you know, mm -hmm. it's a direct violation of, I believe it's section four of the charter you know, your ability to travel within and leave Canada, right? Like, so this is a problem, right? Like there, there, there's a problem here that like our, our political um, structure and our political class hasn't like found it within themselves to put a counter narrative up there. So I personally am liking the fact that the current leadership of the Conservative Party is at least providing some context and some opposition. And that doesn't mean they're like flying off the handles or anything mm -hmm. like that. They're actually like, putting forward some opposing ideas and saying, hey, look, we're looking at the data from the rest of the world. And the fact that, you know, 90% of Canadians are double vaxxed or almost 90%, like many have triple doses, like millions of people have had COVID, like my entire family, including my no, my newborn just had COVID like two weeks ago, you know, and like, I know 50 people who like at least who have had COVID, like just in, you know, my immediate circle now, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so it's like, everybody's had this thing, like, a, shouldn't we be taking natural immunity into account? And B, shouldn't it be like, okay, like maybe it's time to remove these restrictions because like, and I'll tell you, like I'm I'm double vaccinated and I got vaccinated late and I got va uh, COVID three weeks to the day after mm. I got my second dose. Well, three, three weeks <laughs> to the day, like at the, the apparently at the high point of immunity mm -hmm. like maybe it helped me or whatever like mm -hmm. you know what i mean like i was only sick like very briefly but regardless you know like in terms of transmission because that's what we're talking about here with these mandates and everything like mm -hmm. there is an argument to be made that like in the age of omicron this is all political theater now and instead of like to like kind of bring this full circle instead of politicians sort of like uh capitalizing on the divisiveness and like the wedge issues like it might be time for them to like unify and and heal a little bit by you know putting some logic into the conversation because there's a large portion of canadians that are kind of looking at what's going on in canada with a lot of these restrictions and yes a lot of the provincial ones are dropping but they're like this doesn't really make sense anymore 
And if this doesn't make sense, what else is the government doing that's not making sense? And that's really bad because mm -hmm. you need people to trust institutions and like we need to trust our institutions because that's how we have a functioning society and democracy. So I'm hoping like, you know, in the conservative leadership race, we get to hear a lot of that, right? Like one, why we need to get back on like a logical pathway forward out of the pandemic, you know, two, like why we need to do this for the benefit of our institutions, like, you know, why we need to treat parliament with respect again and not have like government through like press release, like in the media, you know, this mm -hmm. the American example, I think stands here. Like we have a parliamentary system for a reason, right? Like the prime minister wasn't even the House of Commons last night for the vote, which is completely absurd. Like it's mm -hmm. completely absurd given the importance of the vote, the vote you think he would have at least the wherewithal to be present for this, right? But, you know, this prime minister has seemed to want to circumvent parliament at every opportunity. And I think the conservatives, like a winning message for them, like it can't be obviously exclusively this, but like tying this to a broader theme of like, hey, we need to get back on track with our norms and procedures. We need to make people trust institutions. We need to get like the economy back on track, like, we need to get society back on track. We have like a social crisis going on right now where people are at each other's throats. Like, I don't know if you saw the video where like someone at Blue Mountain was assaulted for like not wearing a mask outside. It's a ski resort in Ontario. Absolutely mm -hmm. crazy, yeah. right? Like, you know, you have this going on. You have the economic issue, education issue. We have a national unity crisis that we were talking about. Internationally, Canada's a joke. We have a crisis there. We have like so many, as my friend Irvin Student says, like there's so many different systems of failure that are going on right now, like simultaneously, that we need to put our fingers on in order to get ourselves back on track. And what we need is like a leader who can communicate this stuff effectively, like in a way that resonates with the public, like in a way that says like, look, we're done with the rhetoric, we're done with the games, the campaign slogans, the like, the 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 Twitter sound bites in our messaging and things like that. And, you know, we really need, we got like a lot of problems to fix. Can Pierre Poliev be the guy? Like, I think he's very social media savvy. I think he's got his finger on the pulse. He's definitely, like you said, he mixes and mashes the whole like freedom and liberty with like responsible government um, message like pretty well. He seems to be the strongest candidate right now. And I like the fact that he's sort of like, a, like the opposite of the narrative we've been hearing. You know, mm -hmm. I don't think like Sheree will have the support to win. Like, I don't know if he can get enough support from the base. And really, I think even some of the institutional heavyweights in the party, like, you know, Jason Kenney and like the, the Harperites and stuff like that, there's like no chance that they'll get their support, which means, you know, across the country and a lot of these EDAs, there won't be support for, for somebody like him. I heard- I think, I think even if he got it, I think he would, the PPC gets 15% next time. If oh, yeah. some fluke, Sheree becomes you, PPC leader, you're like, yeah. 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 So, so there's him. I heard Patrick Brown's name like uh, a, a second time now. Like initially I heard it, then he said no. But then mm -hmm. apparently you might be waiting in the wind or something, you know, like depending on how the leadership race unfolds or whatever. Yeah, I think waiting that, for the rules too, I think. And how yeah, long it'll be. yeah. I think that would be a mistake because, you know, he also is kind of seen as like, more of the same, although he does, like as mayor, he's kind of been pushing back in like a very logically mm -hmm. consistent way. I don't ever want to see a coronation in a leadership race because like you want to see like people who are running, like really have to present their ideas because like maybe you're 
like very savvy on social media, like Polyev, but like when push comes to shove, you can't debate your ideas. Like we as like, you know, or people who are members of the conservative party should be able to voice their, their opinions, right? Like, and, and be able to voice them in like a, a way that's informed by having these leaders put everything out on the table. And I think you lose that when you go unchallenged, right? Like, like take Trudeau's election as leader, for instance, that was like an absolute cor coronation. But, you know, he still had to run against Mark Garneau, who is like a very like sophisticated and talented individual. Right. Like mm -hmm. and I think it's important like that. That sort of thing's important. So I would like to see him run. I think Leslie Lewis is running, if I'm not mistaken. Like I, I, yeah, I heard, like, about that. somebody forwarded me yeah. an email that she had sent out. I don't know if it was to party oh. members or former supporters or what. But like I got an email forward where it like was kind of clear that she was running but i don't think she's officially announced so maybe she's testing okay. the waters what like what are your thoughts uh i i'd like to see polly have a win for sure I yeah think, uh, the, the thought i've had is the conservative base deserves at least to see their ideas represented in an actual election right and it's this weird thing and you know it reminds me just of how it's almost like the establishment is, is worried that conservative ideas will win. So they don't want to ever see it really happen, right? So it's like they're always so obsessed with stopping anyone like Polyev from being the leader of the party itself, right? And so you see there, oh, he can't win, he can't do this, blah, blah, blah. It's totally against what the pollsters are saying. I mean, you've seen, I'm sure you've seen all the articles in the media about how the conservatives made a fatal miscalculation by supporting the convoy. Well, the polls seem to show them doing better, and the NDP's taking a massive hit, right? So, like, Trudeau, his core supporters stick with him. That's not a surprise. The NDP's down five or six points in a lot of polls, right? So there's certainly an aspect of that. The left is saying, wait a minute, I thought we were the anti-police state people. I thought we were against government uh, power. What's what's going on here? And the conservatives are doing very well. So that, that flies in the face of what people are saying. And so I think the other thing with Polyev is he, you know, we talked about how they're always defined, right? He pushes back on that narrative. Uh, they tried to go after him. The media went after him on the convoy. He just kept saying, look, Justin Trudeau is to blame here. He made the situation worse with the policy than with the way he talked about it. So he never accepts the framing of the, the media and the opposition. And I think, you know, I think he's, you know, there's there's going to be the attacks, but he's he's pretty young. He's not extremely socially conservative. I think he's going to be more palatable to the general electorate than the the media has tried to make it look like and his opponents will claim. And I think, yeah, the conservative base, they deserve a chance. I mean, I've said it before to other people, but it's such a weird dynamic in Canada where the NDP and liberals, they tell their supporters, we're going to here's what we're going to give you. We're going to give you what you want. Right. We're going to give you really left wing progressive policy. And then the conservatives spend most of their time telling their base, so here are all the reasons you can't get anything that you want, right? Uh, Canada's too left-wing. We can't give you this. Can't. Give, but make sure you keep giving us money, though. Make sure you keep donating. So I think we need to actually see, as you've talked about, real opposition and a real debate in the country. And I think with Polyev, that could happen. I think with Sheree, obviously it's not going to. Sheree, I think, basically shares Justin Trudeau's basic worldview with a few tweaks, which is kind of a tools problem. Conservatives started to realize, look, O'Toole seems to not really be too upset with most of what Trudeau is doing. He just wants to tweak it a little bit and be the one in charge of doing it. So I think Polyev offers a very uh, different uh, agenda and vision. And he's also, I think he, there could be a generational shift in the country if the, the way he's communicating with young people and what the polls are saying about what young people are supporting. So I, I think I, that's what I'd like to see. We'll see if that's what happens, though. It's, 
politics has been pretty crazy lately, so you can't make too many guarantees. But he's certainly the front runner for now. Yeah, he's definitely the front runner for sure. And I think like he really does bring that like counter narrative, like you said, mm-hmm. right? And if anybody's going to oppose Trudeau, like he he seems to be the guy who can do it with some month because I think there's a lot of like regular people I've heard just like in, in friends and family members and like colleagues and stuff like that. So kind of the shift in their perspective over time where now they're like everything Trudeau does, they kind of see that he's doing it like for vindictive reasons. And, you know, like I feel like he's overstepped a little bit and mm-hmm. the conservatives definitely have to seize the opportunity because like even if you're, you know, like I said, I'm not like like hyper partisan and this is probably why I could never be in politics in this country because, you know, I don't have that like hyper partisan bent. Right. But, you know, what we really need is a different government nationally, like right now. You know what I mean? Like the time has come. We need a complete different direction. And even if you like vote liberal typically, but aren't like a super partisan, like you should want the core of that party's leadership shaken up. Like you should want different people in there that are going to present some different ideas that aren't so radical and so far to the left. And that like pulls Canada back towards the center, right? Like I, I feel it, like I feel that there's a lot of liberal supporters that I speak to, even friends of mine who are kind of like, yeah, I would really like to see some different people like on the front bench, for instance, right? Like a different ideological bent. And it, to get that, we need a shakeup, right? And ho- and hopefully Pierre can, can make that happen. Well, yeah, look at someone like Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. I mean, he's basically, well, not basically, said on video, he lists all the reasons why he's not happy with the Emergencies Act and wouldn't support it. Then he says, but it's a whip to vote. Do you, really think, do you think someone like him really thought that's what he was getting into when he was recruited to run for the Liberals? No do you chance. think if they said, hey, bro, uh, one day we're going to bring in the Emergencies Act and we'll be denounced by all the major civil liberties groups and you're going to really disagree with it, but we're going we're gonna to say that it's a, it's a whip to vote yeah. and you have to vote for it. Or you're out. You want to run for us. No, I think I'll do something else with my life. So... You know, I think I think there's a lot of people in that party who are starting to feel that Trudeau's suppressing it so far, but you can never keep a lid on that permanently. You know, I do. I, I, I want to say something about that. Do you think that this becomes a problem where we have so many career politicians and like, you know, think before, like at some point in a better time, let's call it right, where like people would have other jobs before they got into politics and they didn't mind going back to those jobs. And now you have so many people who are so concerned about their political careers that they'll just bite the bullet because they know this is like the only chance they have to stay in parliament. Like, I wonder if that plays into this and, you know, maybe term limit should be a thing, you know, to kind of prevent against this. Yeah, for sure. And I think a reform of the way parties work, you know, the fact that a party leader can say, yeah, the local constituency wanted you as a candidate, but I'm not signing your papers, your nomination papers. So that they have to take that power away. You know, it's, you know, you look at two examples would be, I think, the, the UK and the US, you know, the two countries, of course, we're most similar to. And there's so much more independence in their political system. Mm. Right. And you could say, OK, oh, the states it has a different system than us. But can't look at the UK and, and come up with any, you know, real you know, institutional reason why we have less freedom within our political parties than they do. There's no reason with it. No. It's supposed to be the same system. So, yeah, the fact that we have such a rigid party system, and I think that's starting to shape, shift a little bit, especially in the Conservative Party. I think that's wasn't talked about too much, but I think that was a revolt of MPs against centralization itself, where the weaker O'Toole got, the more he tried to double down, you know, kicking out Denise Batters 
you know, threatening to boot people out. Yeah. You know, and it just people were like, no, that's enough of that. You know, you don't yeah, have our support. We're not going to be cowed into supporting somebody. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. Like, because I think wasn't it Chong like reintroduced something that he had introduced before? Um, yeah, the in, into, thing. yeah, into their yeah. their own caucus or whatever, mm-hmm. and uh, I believe it passed, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong mm-hmm. about that. Somebody told me that like it's changed the dynamic. The leader can't just unilaterally kick people out of the party now, which is nice. Yeah. But like you used the UK example, could you imagine this Emergency Act vote in the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. right? Like there would be no whips on the vote or anything like that, right? Like there's, no. you know, like it, it's definitely it's not the same dynamic here. Right. Like maybe there would be whips on the front bench or whatever. And I think that would be expected of any government for sure, um, because if you didn't want to vote with the government, you should resign. If you think the government's offside and we don't see much of that, like, you know, like maybe this would be my last point on this because I can go all day. But like we never see people resigning for principle anymore. Like mm-hmm. even the way Turner resigned from Pierre Trudeau's cabinet when he disagreed about the flip flopping on the price or the wage controls. Right. Um you know, people resign in, in, in out of principle. Like you don't see that. I think, my, ironically, Michael Chong was the he did one of the more recent. Yeah, he, yeah, he yeah. quit the Harper cabinet because he didn't like the uh, Quebec as a nation. And his political yeah. career had suffered, right? But yeah. like he look at him, like look at the speech he gave on the Emergencies mm-hmm. Act. Like he is a a person of principle, like somebody like he's very respectable. Someone you want. I want him on committee. I want him in parliament because I know mm-hmm. that his like his ethics and his values and his principle go before his desire to be a cabinet minister, right? Yeah, and just you know, back to the whole you know centralization. The fact that we have like a position called the chief whip, right? And then we talk about whipped votes, right? Yeah. Who who holds a whip and who gets whipped, right? Yeah. Look. At, hmm. yeah. Right. Master uh, yeah, slave I mean, scenario, yeah. right? Like, so that we've accepted that that's our political party. You become an MP so that you'll be a political slave and you'll be whipped into place to do what your leader tells you. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't sound too good to me. The connection to our elitist roots um, mm-hmm. are often on full display, right? Like yeah. whether or not, you know, like like if you explain it to people, they wouldn't agree in principle. But just think about the, the power of the leader you know, in the political party system, the centralized authority of the prime minister's office and the premier's office. This, these have like very elitist like beginnings. This like, like it's almost like this, like, you know, we're in control here. Mm-hmm. Like we're in control of this. Whereas, you know, it's a lot different in other systems of government, like specifically in the America. It's one of the, it's one of the few things that I prefer about the American system is the fact that it's a little bit more decentralized and like outside candidates have an opportunity and like, you know, you don't owe your candidacy. If I make it in as a senator, for instance, I don't owe, if I'm a Democrat, like I don't owe Chuck Schumer anything. Like Mm -hmm. I don't have to vote with him, you know? Where here, it's almost like if you are able to run for a candidate, in a sense, even though you do all the campaigning work, you owe your position to the leader because they've allowed you to run in a sense, right? And like it, it yeah. really warps that power dynamic, I think, like to your earlier point. So, yeah, look at a state like Kentucky, right? You've got Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell as the two senators there, technically in the same party, but they don't agree on too much, right? So, yeah. yeah, that's good. Yeah. yeah, well, I think that's a good place to end it. You know, this has been really a great discussion. I think I'll be on pretty soon on your show as well. So, I'm sure we'll continue. And it's going to be a lot to talk about, I imagine, the way things are crazy. But yeah, it's been really a great discussion. I think people are going to really enjoy it. And we'll include links to your podcast, Conversations with Canadians. I'll encourage everybody to follow you on Twitter and social media and get the word out there. And yeah, I really appreciate it. I know. I appreciate that, man. And congratulations on the podcast. 
Thank Definitely you. long overdue. I can't say that <laughs> enough. So, saying, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm excited uh, to listen. I'm, uh, you know, I listened to your first episode. I, I will be a fan. So looking forward to, to some more. And thanks for having me, man. Yeah, no problem. Take care. Take care.